I don't know about you, but I feel like with my friends, I've kind of got the reputation as the person who is generally always harking on about trade unionism. The one who is constantly trying to persuade everyone that they should join a trade union and of their importance. And well, it's a pretty frustrating role to occupy. My friends are great, don't get me wrong. They're compassionate, engaged, they care about inequality and social justice. But for them, trade unions just aren't on their radar. They don't see them as something that they could or should get involved with. Something important for achieving the more just and fair society that they all want to realise. So this week's episode is close to my heart as we welcome Eve Livingston onto the Fair Work podcast. Eve is a writer based in Glasgow whose book Make Bosses Pay Why We Need Trade Unions was released by Pluto Press last month. Our conversation, which I recorded back in the summer of this year, looks at contemporary trade unionism. It looks at what is holding unions back, as well as what they could achieve. It looks at the power and opportunity within collective organising to solve a range of the social, political, economic and environmental issues faced by our global community. But it also looks at where we're going wrong and what we can do about it. Just a note for regular listeners, I've done a lot less sound design than usual this episode and have left it kind of stripped back. It didn't feel like it fit with the style of the conversation so much, but let me know what you think. As always, I'm really keen to hear from those who listen to the podcast and my email is in the description below. I'll be back at the end, but for now, I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, so I wondered if we could start off um, and you could just tell me a little bit um, about kind of your own personal journey into trade unionism um, and kind of how you got interested um, in trade unions. Yeah, so I guess um, I think similar to kind of most people or most trade unionists of my age and probably younger, um, a lot of it was to do with my family. So I come from a kind of working class family on both sides so one side from Glasgow and one side from East London um, and my mum went on to become a labour lawyer so it was kind of in my background like this you know I always knew what a trade union was and I always kind of knew it was important and I always knew that the, the thing to do was to be in it like you know that, that's the first thing you do when you start a job is to join the, the union um, and then I kind of as I got older and sort of studied and started to think about work and, and that kind of thing. I was always really interested in doing something around um, social, social justice, can't speak. Um, so I did like a sociology degree and studied inequalities and stuff. And then I um, started uh, working with the student union. So I was elected representative um, of the student union at Edinburgh University, which I think is also a kind of touch point for a lot of young people in terms of unions. For a lot of them, student unions will be the kind of main um, relationship they have to, to unionism. Um, but because of my interest in um, kind of social justice and inequalities, I sort of came to realise um, relatively quickly that um, unions, kind of in their broadest sense and collectivism, um, is sort of the the only or at least the, the best um, kind of thing that we have, you know, it's the best tool that, that we have as ordinary people for kind of making a, a difference to our own lives and, and changing anything. Um, so I think sometimes people think of unions as being quite a niche topic, you know, being just kind of specifically all about making things a little bit better in a very particular type of workplace. But um, what I hope comes across in the book and what, what I always try to kind of stress when I'm thinking about unions is that I actually think they have this much broader kind of um, role in, in society as a whole um, and in yeah, kind of ordinary working class people's lives. Um, so yeah, it was a kind of combination of just my, my background and my family background um, and then coming to realise quite kind of organically that that um, that's that's what we need as a, a union and a sort of collective voice and collective action. And, and you talk a bit about in the in the book, you share a few of your experiences with kind of beginning that process of, of becoming involved in trade unions. And I wondered kind of if you could share what, what was it like, kind of like that process of joining a pro union for the first time, particularly as a young person, as a woman, kind of like, what was your experience of it? when I kind of got my first, um, you know, quote unquote proper job after having spent a year um, working at the Students' Union. And that was in um, 
I wouldn't name them, but it was in a public sector um, organization in Glasgow with quite an established kind of union presence. Um, and so, so there was a recognized union at the workplace. And when I went for my kind of induction session, you know, where they do fire safety and admin protocol and all that, they did have a five minute um, section from the trade union rep where he um, talked about the union and why we should join and that kind of thing. And there were only like a handful of us in that induction session, just kind of all the people that started in the last month or whatever. And I was the youngest and I was the only woman. And um, I kind of forget now specifically what it was that he said, but the, the rep on the way out just made some allusion to like, this won't be of any interest to you, um, you know, talking about the union. And he spent much longer kind of trying to talk to the, the slightly older men that had been in the induction session who, to be honest, didn't seem very interested at all. Um, and I, it really that really struck me because I'd just spent a year kind of in an elected position at a student's union, kind of, you know, at the... the like front line of sort of unions and um, collective action and campaigning and all of that kind of thing. Um, and he he just kind of looked at me and made a judgment that it wasn't for me. Um, and then when I when when I kind of, you know, corrected him and said, oh, I actually am really interested and told him a bit about myself, you could see him kind of getting a bit sheepish. And so, yeah, it wasn't, a, I think, you know, if I hadn't been someone with that background of kind of knowing that I needed to be in the union, I could have very easily been put off at that stage. And I think many people are, um, you know, I think it's it's true that a lot of people think of a union and, and think of a man like that man um, and think of out-of-date shoe polish and, and old logos and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I hope that... Um, part of what I try and do in the book is kind of dispel some of that, um, even if it does exist in some corners still. Yeah, and it's interesting to think of, kind of obviously that's just one example and it kind of, you know, um, it's, it's a kind of microcosm, um, but it's interesting to think about kind of our broader narratives around kind of trade unionism and how it's kind of amongst young people, it, it does just seem like this distant thing. It doesn't feel like it's such a kind of prevalent and dominant thing within kind of like the discourse surrounding what it means to be a young person in our contemporary labor market. Um, and kind of thinking about that, I kind of wanted to ask you like, what, what made you want to write the book? Um, and why did you feel like it was a necessary kind of project to take on? Yeah, so I think the key thing for me was that I felt there was space for a sort of um, insider-outsider perspective on unions. Um, because I think that because of the kind of attacks that unions are facing from every direction, you know, kind of from the, the state, um, from like weakening membership numbers, um, from kind of anti-trade union laws, all of this stuff. Um, I think because of that context, people who are kind of right in the middle of unions and elected representatives um, and that those those kinds of people, I think they can sometimes feel very defensive of unions and, and rightfully, you know, I understand if you're in that position um, that your job all the time is to be kind of defending why they're important and um, why people should keep joining and why these laws shouldn't exist. Um, so on the one hand, you have that kind of, um, I think, understandable defensiveness from sort of union um, insiders. And then I think on the other hand, you have kind of criticism of unions that comes in bad faith. So you see kind of columnists writing, um, you know, about, for instance, uh, like how women are underrepresented in the union movement. But these are columnists who don't really care about women's representation. They just want to stick to beat unions with. Um, so I felt like there was a gap somewhere in the middle there for someone like me who, you know, is really passionate about trade unions and collective action and kind of unionism in its broadest form and who truly believes that they are kind of the, the greatest, um, you know, kind of vehicle that we have um, to, to also take a, a critical look at them and say, you know, unions are important, they're vital, we need to be in them, um, they need to exist and be protected but there are also a lot of things that they could do um, and, and there are lots of ways that they could change and there are lots of um, things they could do differently in the 21st century for a, a new kind of labour market and a new generation of workers. Um, and, and so I, I, I kind of felt like there wasn't much that existed in that that space of kind of, you know, a critical insider. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that was kind of the, the impetus for it, I think. Um, and I hope people can tell that even where there's sort of criticism or challenges in the book, it's all written with, you know, kind of love and admiration and, and respect for what, what unions do. Um, and you kind of like you choose to focus a lot of the kind of the narrative of the book around kind of young people and you kind of frame it as this is about kind of 
why young people need trade unions, but also kind of like from that perspective. Um, and I kind of like wanted to ask why you chose this particular group to focus it on. Yeah, well, one of the reasons for that is that this book is part of um, a brilliant series, actually, at Pluto Press called Outspoken, which is um, targeted towards a younger audience. So like it kind of um, 18 to 30 year olds, roughly, I think. Um, and so when I was thinking about a book kind of in those parameters, it sort of naturally happened that it was young workers I was thinking about. But I think also that um, they are just the key key group for the future of unions you know if unions are going to survive we need to be kind of educating younger workers about what they are and why they're important um, and we need to be getting them involved as members um, and the kind of tagline on the back of the book and, and the way that I've talked about it often is to say um, you know young workers really need unions and unions really need young workers because they need that kind of fresh um, input and insight and experience um, from people who are experiencing the, the labour market completely differently from even one generation before them um, and, and, and who are doing great kind of campaigning work in other realms, you know, so I talk in the book about trying to bring in some of the fantastic um, kind of gender campaigning and, you know, um, LGBT to sort of trans inclusive campaigning that's happening in sort of queer spaces and all these other places and trying to bring that in and make it union work. Um, and, and, you know, there are lots of overlaps between kind of younger workers and, and their older counterparts. Um, I don't kind of go in for a very strict generational divide. Um, but I do think that um, a, a lot of the people at the forefront of that kind of work are, are younger um, campaigners and organisers. Um, and I would like to see them kind of getting right in the middle of a union movement and, and transforming it from the inside. Yeah, totally. And it's, I mean, just like, you know, it was interesting reflecting on it as I read the book kind of as a, as a young person kind of, we're experiencing the labour market in such a radically different way from older generations, but it doesn't feel like trade unions are part of kind of like our collective vernacular for how we kind of think about addressing these issues, particularly as so many young people these days are kind of, you know, engaging positively in social justice and social transformation, but it doesn't feel like that collective kind of unit of like a trade union is something which we automatically like reach for as a tool to achieve that kind of social transformation yeah i think i think that's exactly it and, and i also think in terms of kind of the um like political side of it in terms of political campaigning and stuff we've seen for years you know for the last best part of the last 10 years young people kind of putting their energy into like party political campaigning during elections and things and i think it's important that people you know even even if they didn't see kind of success in that way you know maybe the people that were campaigning for corbyn in the uk or for bernie sanders in the us or whatever um i think it's important that that, that energy goes somewhere and for me like unions are the place to put that energy now um because we need to be building kind of institutions that last you know not dependent on election cycles um and and that have kind of um all these things built into the middle of them you know solidarity and kind of um liberation and all of that sort of stuff so um yeah so i think you're right that there ha there is a lot of energy amongst kind of a younger generation um and i would like to see that um being directed into unions and uh, again i mean unions in their broadest form so if not trade unions kind of community unions or other types of collectives um but, but certainly sort of collective um action that requires organizing and not just sort of activism and campaigning um, yeah, totally. And, and I wonder kind of like when you were thinking about what kind of unions to reach out for kind of, obviously there's huge amounts of different trade unions and kind of huge number of different sectors, which are covered. But when you were kind of thinking about who to reach out to, what were you kind of looking for and kind of what was, what were the kinds of stories that you wanted to explore within the book? Yeah. So again, I kind of identified, um, I guess, issues that I thought were particularly pertinent to young people. So the kind of obvious banner one is like precarious, insecure work, um, which again, doesn't only apply to young younger workers. There's lots of, um, kind of, I mean, at this point, you know, there's lots of older, particularly women workers who have always been working in kind of um, insecure contracts. And we didn't really recognize it as a phenomenon until we had sort of young men on bikes, you know, doing what's called the gig economy and um, kind of fancy sounding name for, for something that, uh, you know, cleaners and care workers have done forever. 
Um, but certainly a lot of young people do work in the, the gig economy and the kind of precarious sectors. Um, so I sort of identified a, a list of things um, like that that I thought were most relevant to young workers. So, you know, precarious work, kind of as we've discussed, the sort of issues of equality and diversity, or as I put it in the book, kind of liberation, um, as opposed to just representation. Um, yeah, kind of all these, as I say, things like democracy stuff sort of came through later, but that turned out to be a big concern for lots of the, the young people I spoke to. Um, so it was a kind of chicken and egg situation where I identified, you know, a list of kind of wish list of people I'd like to speak to. Um, most of them did speak to me, which was uh, great. Um, and then they kind of recommended other people or other themes came up and I needed to find someone who could speak more clearly to that theme. Um, so I then kind of approached you know for other people but I wanted to make sure that there was a, a combination of um different types of relationships to unions so I wanted just to be kind of ordinary lay workers um as well as organizers as well as kind of general secretaries um and you know Don Butler's in there as a kind of politician who can speak to the role that trade unions had in her background and getting her to the, the kind of place where she is now um so that was important to me was to have all those different kinds of perspectives um you know research and academics and things as well um, because I think that that's one of the issues in the way that we talk about trade unions is we don't really always recognize the kind of plethora of different roles that happen within them and different relationships that people have to them um, so I hope that that comes across as well the kind of diversity of different um, relationships there. Yeah and also within that like in terms of I think what well, one of the things which I really like about you talking in the book is kind of like unions as a kind of vehicle for relationships to form and kind of uh, as a vehicle for political education and like a lot of the kind of stories which I thought really stood out for me for the book is people who kind of you know had no experience of trade unionism or activism or kind of like social justice and didn't see it as kind of that they were able to be part of that process and actually trade unionism as an ability to kind of allow people to gain those skills and gain that kind of confidence. I thought that was like a really interesting part of the book and which is such a pertinent part of trade unionism as well, like particularly kind of smaller scale grassroots trade unionism as well. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a really powerful part. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm really pleased to hear you pick up on that because that was quite important to me that that came through as well. Um, because I think you're right. I think they're, you know, sites of solidarity and kind of inherent in that is the idea that you'll meet people in trade unions that become your friends for life and change the course of your life. Um, and I think we, we have to kind of celebrate that as much as we celebrate the sort of wins of, you know, getting a kind of winning a salary campaign or a holiday campaign or whatever. Um, and yeah, there are, there are lots of stories in, in the book of that. And there are lots that I couldn't include either, you know, there was an example of um, there's a, a campaign called Better Than Zero in Scotland who do feature in the book um, who are kind of cross-union campaign all about um, precarious work and insecure contracts um, and zero hours contracts kind of particularly in, I guess, hospitality. Um, and they, there's an activist, a Better Than Zero activist who introduced Jeremy Corbyn at a rally during the um, election campaign um, who like two years ago had had no involvement in um, trade unions and had just been a, a kind of barmaid with no political background or anything and she'd become involved in better than zero through a workplace dispute and then had kind of stuck around and learned so much and made so many friends that two two years later which isn't very long she was she was the one kind of doing an introductory speech for for corbyn on this election tour stories like that really kind of stuck with me as i was researching that you don't there aren't many other kind of ways that people get into um that sort of political sphere um and, and kind of rise in it so quickly um and also because i think that's a kind of call to action for unions you know some of them do it very well but some of them could be doing it better to kind of bring in those young people and really nurture them and, and build those relationships and build those skills and kind of invest you know time and, and sometimes money in um yeah building up a kind of skill set and a group of people who who can then kind of go on to to be the future of the union mm, yeah totally and i think one of the other things that you talk about in the book which i thought you know i was reflecting on so much was kind of that idea of people see we kind of like with the 
neoliberalization of society, we kind of view every single transaction as being kind of like we weigh it up in terms of cost effectiveness. And we see that within kind of the idea of paying trade union dues and kind of like, is it worth the money? And it's it's so interesting, you know, in the conversations, countless conversations I've had with my friends about trade unionism, where they come back to that as a kind of recurrent theme of like, well, is it worth it? Rather than kind of thinking about trade unionism as kind of like, not something which is as simple as you paying and getting your money's worth, but actually is something which is kind of like a radical form of political organization, which can transform society. Um, and I think that is just, you know, it's such a recurrent kind of issue and theme within kind of like the framework with which we've come to view the world. And I thought it was really like interesting to see it explored in the pages. And I thought that was really, really powerful as well. Yeah, thank you. I think that's kind of, um, I've had some very similar conversations, I think some of which I actually recount in that kind of section that you're you're talking about, where, you know, people are saying, well, I would join, but it's so expensive and my union don't do anything and I've never seen them in my workplace and all of this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, like, I do make a challenge to those individual people to say, like, I would, you should still join and you should get active and all of that. But more kind of importantly than that, I think that's a challenge to, to unions to articulate their role in, in society to those potential members um, and to, to shift from what is in some cases now a largely kind of service-based model back to an organizing one um you know i think that's something they've done kind of understandably in self-protection as they've been faced with all these attacks from every direction is to shift to this service model where it's all about kind of um you know giving advice and giving like discounts and um there being like a very obvious kind of back and forth transaction between the member and the union and um, whereas the, the case that i kind of try to put forward in the book is is for a union that exists as its members and is um focused on organizing and not on service provision so um you know going into unrecognized workplaces and um having that spending that time talking to people and um, putting resource into places where um there isn't a kind of union presence yet but will pay off in the long run and um, so I think yeah I think you know it would be easy to say oh those people just don't understand trade unions and it's really annoying that they don't and um, but really I think it's part of this whole bigger context of um, kind of how, how unions have been perceived and attacked for decades now um, and the way that they've had to respond to that um, so yeah I think it's kind of a bigger issue to to fix um, but I think there is potential to fix it. And building on that, I kind of wanted to ask, what do you feel is the role of trade unions in society? And why do you feel like we need trade unions? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I kind of have touched on it in our conversation already in that I think there is this really important role for unions in a workplace of um you know, responding to the issues that people are facing in one specific workplace and going in and hopefully kind of resolving those issues. Um, but almost more importantly to me is the kind of wider societal um, kind of role that unions have. And I think that it is just as a collective voice of ordinary people. Um, there isn't really another one. <laughs> there isn't really another collective voice for ordinary people. You know, there's a lot of collective voice for um, like business people and for um, kind of rich people in terms of lobbying and banks and investments and all of this kind of thing. Um, there isn't really another vehicle for, for ordinary working class people to kind of speak as one and, and to counter that um, sort of corporate uh, power that exists. Um, and we see it, you know, that there's a lot of evidence that, that shows exactly that, that in kind of um, places where trade unions are really strong, um, you see quite a direct redistrib redistribution of wealth, actually. You know, you see um, kind of working class people prospering. Um, and actually, sometimes you see like richer people um, having to redistribute some of that that wealth as well. It's, it's kind of quite a direct um, relationship sometimes. Um, and, and so so I think it, it, it really is just that. It's just that they, they are the kind of best vehicle that we have available to us to kind of speak as one, to counter um, sort of lobbying and corporate power um, and, and to kind of tackle these sort of inequalities of different types as well, you know, whether that's kind of um, to do with gender or race or disability or these kinds of issues, which um, I think lots of young workers are very concerned with. Um, unions that have sort of... Um, you know, a role, an established role within society are great places to advance that work. 
um, rather than starting your own, you know, I would never discourage anyone from starting their own campaign about anything. But um, I think it's always worth considering, like, if I just start something kind of out on the edge on my own sort of abstract campaign on an island um, rather than a union which has kind of, um, you know, relationships to the state, relationships to workplaces, um, international relationships, um, you know, is to some extent protected by um, kind of legal protections, although not as much as we would hope anymore. Um, you know, I think they, they can be um, places where that work is kind of best served and best advanced. Um, so, yeah, so to me, it's just they, they kind of are what, what we have and we have to work with them and, and make them better and kind of use the powers that they that they do have. Yeah, completely. And just kind of, I think that idea of as a voice for working people to kind of be able to exert power, like, because, you know, the power of corporations um, over their workers can be so great. Like, particularly we see this within the gig economy where, you know, workers have so little power, they are often classified as legal, um, as self-employed, which limits their legal protections. And it is just kind of like, it's so important to think of the way in which we can kind of collectivize and provide some form of counter power um, to kind of like, you know, improve conditions within workplaces because, you know, workers on their own are just so powerless so often. So I think, yeah, trade unions are so important in that regard. Yeah. And, and that kind of corporate power and, and the, the bosses that you're referencing there, they have like really strong class solidarity. Um, you know, they, they have like, they've got each other's backs big style in terms of like the kinds of organizations that they are part of and the kind of, you know, access that they have into like halls of power and the sort of public imagination. Um, so, you know, it's kind of essential that ordinary people find a way to, to counter that or to, to balance it out at least. Um, because, you know, when, when working class people and when unions talk about kind of class solidarity, it's always framed and attacked as kind of class war, as if it's like a bit kind of tasteless and like, um, yeah, I don't know, kind of... Uh, well, radical, I suppose, in a kind of negative sense. Um, but, you know, no one ever talks about the, the kind of class war that the rich are waging all the time on, on workers and the bosses are, are waging on the people they employ. So um, I think in that sense, it's it's pretty vital that we, we kind of use the, the vehicles that we have to have that collective voice. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's interesting the, when the, you talk about that kind of that ability for kind of corporate power and and uh and the and bosses to kind of like shape the kind of legal landscape or the kind of regulatory landscape in really important ways it's kind of um just made me think about the example of proposition 22 in california which happened earlier this year um and kind of the ability for platforms to collectivize and lobby on a huge scale to kind of shape the the regulatory landscape in a way which suited them and the ability to them to use the kind of the platforms themselves which they have access to to kind of to advertise and kind of politically lobby the general public in a way um and it's just it's you know that imbalance of power is so so large um and it kind of i think it made me think about a lot of the the stuff that you write about in the book and a lot of the trade unions you talk about are very grassroots and they kind of you kind of talk about a lot of trade unions which kind of a lot of the tactics where they employ are not kind of often the classic trade union tactics, which we kind of associate um, of kind of mediation. A lot of it you talk about is kind of direct action, using social media as a kind of tool for kind of helping to shape the discourse and shaming kind of employers um, when they mistreat uh, workers. Um, and I kind of, it sometimes feels like the, the landscape in which we're occupying is so unfavorable to precarious workers and whilst these tools make sense they have a huge amount of kind of sent uh, like you know in unrecognized workplaces in um areas where there's very little legal protection these tactics are basically the only way in which unions can kind of enact in a way which actually creates meaningful change but it does feel like they have their limitations and there is only so much that they can actually achieve before they run up against hard walls um, due to kind of 
the legal status of workers, um, the inability for them to kind of the, you know, redactive and reductive trade union laws that we have in this country. Um, and I wanted to ask kind of what you feel about that, like what are the limitations and what can trade unions do about them? Um, and is there any way in which we can help kind of to shape the political and legal landscape in a way which can help workers and improve conditions? Mm. Yeah, so I mean, obviously uh, the, the limitations are are huge um, and quite scary, I think, for kind of long-term trade unionists who have seen it happen. You know, there was a time, um, kind of, you know, the, the 70s and the sort of heyday of trade unionism when um, you could do sort of radical action and it quite often worked. Um, and then, you know, people have kind of watched as you know over the decades as kind of um actually various different uh, politicians and leaders i know people often um kind of talk about margaret thatcher rightfully as kind of smashing the the unions but um there haven't really been anyone since her who've done much to um to kind of reinstate any of those rights either um and so yeah so the the, the kind of challenges um are huge i think in terms of precarious workers specifically um there are actually also opportunities there because i think um while it's very difficult to organize people who might not have a kind of specific workplace and who might not know their um co-workers you know if you're thinking of people working via an app for instance and while that kind of presents specific challenges um there's quite often also a sense that there's like not much to lose for those people um if you're on a zero hour contract anyway and you're quite used to um flitting between different employers and kind of picking up random shifts here and there um sometimes that's an opportunity i think where there are people who are willing to be a bit more radical because they they don't have that kind of relationship with an employer which is like a kind of long-term um you know very close relationship where they can put faces to names and and they've sat in the same rooms as people um and also just because the conditions are so bad that sometimes i think that creates um camaraderie as well in a way that um people can struggle with and kind of white collar um jobs which ironically sometimes have better trade union protection um but you know when you're kind of working day in day out in a call centre and the work's really grinding and um this long hours you know you you form really close bonds with the people that you work with so i think they're all opportunities um and in terms of the kind of legal status there is also an opportunity where if you're not a kind of employee in the full sense um at a workplace then you actually there are some kind of tactics that are available to you that aren't available to people who would be sacked essentially for taking kind of radical actions um so i think we have to be kind of um optimistic that there are also um real opportunities there for precarious workers um but i do more broadly i, I would like to see unions kind of um you know really kind of making strong challenges um against anti-union laws and, and like for for those anti-union laws to be repealed like i almost think that we kind of always end up on the back foot where it's like um you know these laws have happened and that's the way things are now so what we have to do is stop anything worse happening and actually i think we, we want to be talking in a way that's like we need to get those protections back and we need to get rid of some of those anti-union laws and not just kind of um live with them and adapt to them um and again i understand why that's really difficult um you know it's, it's kind of a dangerous thing to do and there there's not a lot of um love between the union movement and our current government um which makes it very difficult so i understand why um unions are kind of reticent to do that um but yeah i think I, I would like to see them kind of um not and they do you know unions do come out and and kind of um oppose you know even the, the sort of kill the bill stuff that's happening right now that does have implications for campaigning and um, and that kind of stuff unions are, are right in there in that conversation um, which I think is really important but um yeah I don't, I don't think there's an easy kind of silver silver bullet um answer to that but um I think yeah it's all part of the kind of organizing work of unions is to organize not only in workplaces but organize kind of within the context of the, the state and the, the law and see kind of what we can make happen there yeah completely and I mean there is huge amount the small scale unions who are very underfunded have been doing 
and incredible work that they've been doing to kind of reshape the kind of landscape in which workers find themselves, you know, kind of we can point to the legal cases brought about uh, classification issues and stuff like that as really powerful moves that unions are doing on a shoestring budget, you know, often having to crowdfund, but which are radically reforming and reshaping the kind of landscape in which kind of workers find themselves both within the countries in which they're making these legal cases, but also beyond as well, um, which I think is really powerful. Um, I wanted to kind of turn back a little bit to the focus of the book on young people. Um, and I kind of, I wanted to, to ask why you think that a lot of young people are turning away from unions, why we kind of, uh, to go back to kind of our radio conversation, kind of like why unions don't feel like part of the vernacular for kind of how young people like achieve social transformation um, and like kind of what the barriers are for unions to attracting young people. Yeah, so firstly, I think the narrative about kind of young people and their membership of unions is um, quite confused in the, the public kind of conversation because um, there hasn't been like a one kind of dramatic drop of young people suddenly not being in unions anymore. There's been like a longer term trend of union membership numbers dropping and, and young people just being part of the working age population that aren't kind of joining unions anymore. But that is also starting to change. So particularly kind of within the coronavirus kind of era, if you like, um, people have started to turn back towards unions. And actually those numbers, even before coronavirus, were starting to creep up, but they have never quite yet reached the kind of um, peak. You know, they, they haven't managed to um, account for the losses yet. So it's not a kind of wholly bleak picture, um, but it's kind of starting from a very difficult baseline. Um, so, yeah, I think there are lots of reasons for that. Um, the TUC did a bit of research um, which I cite in the book, where they spoke to young workers in kind of different types of jobs about trade unions. Um, and they found that there was kind of a number of different issues, um, one of which was just that they had very little knowledge about unions. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it was like people who had family members who were union members kind of had heard of them and had good associations with them but some people just hadn't really heard of them at all and actually um Claire Coatman who's the um T the TUC staff member who um kind of organized that research and who I spoke to for the book she um kind of recounted a conversation she'd had with one of the research participants who had said I think they worked in care and they had said um wow, you know, when you when you explain what a union is, it sounds amazing. I wish there's one that I could join. <laughs> um, and obviously there's multiple that that, that care worker could join, um, but they just had no kind of idea. It just wasn't in their, their sphere um, of knowledge. Um, so there was that. And then there were other issues that they identified. Um, one that struck me the most was um, just having very low expectations of work to begin with. So, you know, if you're going into the world of work and you're just expecting it to be crap and you're expecting your co your co-workers to not be your friends and you're expecting your bosses to hate you and treat you badly um then like why would you fight for anything different if that's what you think the the kind of standard is that's where you think the bar is um then you know what is there to to fight for really um so that that struck with me um and that's just too you know there are more findings that people can can read about in that research and, and in the book um so yeah so i think they're kind of the main um some of the main issues of, of why young people are kind of not coming to unions it's not to do with negative associations with them it's to do with a kind of lack of um knowledge or awareness or um yeah in some cases just not even knowing that they exist so i think what you know some of the main things that unions can do is just just be like visibly winning like being in the workplaces where young people are um and doing that organizing work um and actually like sometimes they're not at the moment because young people are so concentrated in sectors like hospitality um care retail those kinds of jobs where you that aren't very well recognized or organized by unions um and so i kind of make this challenge over and over again in the book is that it's a big leap for unions to devote time and energy and resource um, into these unrecognized workplaces without knowing that it's going to pay off but i kind of think they have to do it i think they they have to hope that it will pay off i think it will pay off um and they, they have to go into those workplaces and they have to be visible they have to be telling young people um 
you know what what they do um and they have to be kind of organizing and winning um and campaigns like better than zero um are a really good example of that where they just took kind of direct action whenever you know a, a young person would come to them and say my tips so you, this is a hypothetical example but a young person would say my tips are being um held onto by my boss and better than zero would just um you know kind of put a social media post out about that kind of naming and shaming and then they would turn up at the the uh, the restaurant and campaign outside it and then the next week the boss would say yeah we're changing our policy on that and um, so that you know that's like an oversimplification but in some cases for organizations like better than zero that is how it's worked um so i think it, it really is kind of in some ways very simple about just being doing that deep organizing and the visible wins um, and and that's what creates new trade unionists it's not kind of um, discounts or um, service provision, as we discussed previously. So in the book as well, you talk about kind of the idea of the the liberatory union kind of like and holding the idea that unions of different types can hold the ability to address some of the kind of systemic imbalances in society and kind of marginality of different groups. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about what ways can unions achieve this? How have they succeeded in doing this in the past, but also how have they failed? Yeah, so what I kind of call for in the book is a, a kind of change in structure almost of, of unions, which, um, you know, I kind of describe as having been built in the model of a, a like a white straight male breadwinner, um, you know, who, who kind of would be expected to earn a family wage um, and then support his whole family, you know, um, while his wife kind of stays at home and looks after the children. And that's an oversimplification because there are working class women who have always had to go out and, and work. But um, kind of in terms of um, unions and how they were structured and how, um, you know, collective bargaining was structured was always around that kind of idea of a man needing to secure a family wage. Um, and so I call for, for something quite different which is a, a kind of structure that moves away from that breadwinner um, and instead can kind of um, be a place where what I describe as liberatory politics can happen um, which is kind of to move beyond just um, equality and diversity so the, the, the kind of place where I situate unions in the book is uh, as kind of being in transition between that white male breadwinner model um, towards sort of liberatory unionism but at the moment being quite focused on equality and diversity and representation so maybe having kind of um, distinct structures for black workers or having a disabled workers representative um, but quite often those bits of work happening kind of on the margins um, or in silos and not being sort of the centre of union work. Um, so I suppose like the, the the kind of ideal thing that I see, and there are lots of barriers to this in terms of the, the restrictions placed upon unions and what they're allowed to campaign on, but would be, you know, taking strike action over a kind of um, liberation issue. So um, taking strike action over the treatment of like trans workers in your workplace or, um, you know, kind of collective bargaining over um, like leave for people to go through a transition for instance i keep on using the the kind of um trans example because to me that's just such an obvious example of a kind of really underserved um group of people who are you know attacked kind of in wider society and and then um, and probably also within workplaces have a really hard time so i think unions could be doing kind of a lot more um in that sense because the for me the kind of root of all of that is that you know we are kind of working class people in our workplaces. Um, and, and quite often I think you find people on the left who, who want to um, flatten some of those differences and say, well, we're, the most important thing is class. We're all just working class people. Um, but actually I think anyone who's from a, a marginalized background will tell you that the way that you experience your class and the way that you experience your gender or your race or your sexuality um, kind of shape and reinforce each other. So our experiences are all very different, even if we are all kind of one working class. We're all experiencing um, being working class in a very different kind of way based on, on all those factors. Um, and so I, I would love to see a trade unionism that can like really grapple with that. Um, I think like some unions are kind of better at doing that than others so unions that organize migrant workers for instance um there are a lot of like kind of grassroots work going on around that so uvw united voices of the world um, and iwgb kind of organizing like 
um, cleaners who tend to be like migrant women a lot of the time. And that's quite central to how they campaign is like the, the specific issues facing migrants and facing women and the fact that they end up in these insecure kind of low paid jobs, really badly treated um, because they are migrants and because they are women and not just as some kind of, um, you know, twist of fate. Um, so I think they're they're starting to give us some quite good examples of, of how that can work. Um, and then there's some really good examples from the US and stuff as well. I think I talk in the book about um, the inclusion of sort of queer rights and collective bargaining and how that's happened. Um, and that's a, a really good example, I think, because um, in the US, your kind of union or your, your healthcare is kind of often contingent on your union status or your workplace, at least. So often unions in the US are fighting for really basic access to healthcare. And obviously, if you're a, a trans person, you need specific type of healthcare. Um, and your union or your workplace might be the only way that you can access that. And so I think that's a really good example of how you're. Um, kind of identity as a trans person um you know shapes your identity as a working class person and vice versa and how unions can be in that space making that case um so there are kind of things that uh, you know in a really kind of big picture way i would love to see um that's a big ask there are kind of things that we could be doing in the interim as well yeah totally and it's interesting to think about in the nature of the gig economy like the intersection of precarity in various different ways, be that in immigration status, be that in kind of your housing situation and kind of how those kind of various kind of that matrix of precarity kind of like intersect to form your particularly vulnerability in certain cases. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting to think about how trade unionism can expand solidarity beyond kind of, you know, looking at your collective kind of, your shared interest, but also looking at how individual people experience precarity in different ways and kind of as a vehicle for trying to improve that at a societal level, um, I think is a really powerful kind of call to arms. Um, I kind of like the final kind of question I wanted to ask is kind of, because obviously how at Fair Work we think about the gig economy is so international. We kind of, mm. it, it happens around the world in various different ways. And I think one of the things which I really liked about the book is kind of thinking about international solidarity and how trade unionism can be this kind of vehicle um, for the ability for people in radically different parts of the world, but who care about social justice to kind of come together to kind of, leverage power in whatever way they can um and i just wondered if you could kind of outline your kind of vision for international solidarity and how you kind of all your hopes for how that might play out in practice going forward yeah well first of all i think um there is no kind of successful trade union movement in the uk that isn't um kind of grounded in international solidarity just because we you know live in it's cliche but live in such a globalized world we have such a globalized workforce um and the the kind of bosses and the companies that we're taking on are global entities as well so if you're thinking of like uber you know that's one of the biggest private companies in the world now so um to be kind of focusing all our energy on just organizing like uber drivers in one city um might help those particular uber drivers and might be worth that that kind of bit of time but there's so much potential there to be linking that up into a kind of wider um wider kind of cause um and that's what i, I spoke to um a woman nicole moore from um who's a Lyft driver in California and a union um, organizer there. Um, and that's exactly what she said was, I, I kind of identified that um, her as someone to speak to because there's quite an interesting example of where um, Uber drivers and actually kind of people working as drivers for similar types of companies that aren't always Uber um, around the world had organized a, a conference, a, a worldwide conference where representatives came and they talked about the different issues they were facing. Um, and, and she said, you know, they were all the same issues. They were all the, the, the issues of kind of long hours, lack of control, low pay, um, other types of exploitation. So, um, so, so that that's what I see really. I, I see unions working on a, a kind of three pronged thing where they're working in their workplaces, in their communities, and, and society, and then kind of internationally as well. Um, I think some are, are really good at doing that. You know, I spoke recently at um, a conference um, for international public 
Public Service Workers Day. I've probably got the name of that wrong, but um, anyway, I spoke to the, the European Public Services Union, who are like an umbrella union for public service unions all across Europe. Um, and, you know, organisations like that are kind of building these really good alliances. Um, and so I think it's, it is about that. It's about kind of um, identifying your counterparts in other parts of the world and um, being in touch with them and hearing how you can support them and how they can support you. Um, and yeah, just kind of, it's just all about kind of relationship building and, and doing the type of organising that we do all the time in unions, um, kind of in a, on an international level and, and um, kind of in an international way. Um, and then I also think the, the kind of really important part of, of it as well is uh, about um, being really active within the UK on um, kind of the issues of immigration and being really, um, really supportive and, and welcoming and organising migrant workers rather than seeing them as enemies, as traditionally has sometimes happened within even within the union movement um, of people seeing migrant workers as a kind of challenge to them rather than a... Um, a, a, you know a person experiencing exactly the same issues um, and I think that has to be part of the jigsaw as well if everyone's going to be moving around um, so much and a lot more so in the future with you know with threats of climate change and things like that um, we need to be starting from a, a point that's like um, you know we have solidarity internationally with people who are elsewhere in the world and we also have, have unconditional solidarity with people who've come from elsewhere in the world to, to work alongside us um, I think that's like a, a key part of that that puzzle too um, so yeah I, I, I just I think that as I say there's no successful um, trade unionism really in the UK that or there's a very limited success to the trade unionism in the UK we can have if we don't have an international um, view on that so um, yeah I think it's, it's kind of vital Thanks to Eve Livingston for taking the time to talk to me. Eve's book, Make Bosses Pay, is out now, released by Pluto Press. At Fair Work, we believe that all work can and should be characterised by fair pay, fair conditions, fair contracts, fair management and fair representation. Platforms ultimately have the power to improve standards and the ability to choose to. For workers in the gig economy to meaningfully have a voice in determining their working conditions, they must be able to bargain with the platform for a collective or representative body. At current, the structure of gig work means that platforms have no legal obligation to recognise trade unions and other representative organisations. At Fair Work, we believe that platforms should take a proactive approach to representation by recognising existing organisations where they do exist and entering into negotiations in good faith. We're actively campaigning to improve the conditions for gig workers around the world and hold platforms to account. You can find out more at fair.work.